Have you ever noticed how sometimes you can have the exact same event happen, but that that event produces really different consequences, really different reactions for different people? So, for example, last Sunday afternoon, South Sydney defeated Penrith, 42 to 22. That is a fact of history. Sorry if I'm breaking the news to you. And yet that one event, I suspect, would have produced wildly different reactions. For Penrith supporters, probably meant disappointment, sadness. For South supporters, dancing around the room, singing, jumping up and down on the lounge, cheering. It's actually pretty embarrassing the way Sue carried on. (laughs) The one event, different circumstances. Now... Last Sunday, we considered one of those sorts of events. Last Sunday here at church, we read Revelation 15, 16, and we heard about the seven last plagues of God as God poured out his full and final wrath onto his creation. Last Sunday, we saw John's vision of the end of the world. And friends, what Revelation now does in its last six chapters, which is really the big section that we're looking at this morning, what Revelation does is it teases out the ramifications of those seven last plagues because it wants to show us that that one cataclysmic event, that great and terrible day when God's wrath is completed, it's actually going to produce wildly different consequences for different people. And the text does certain things to highlight that for us. So you have a look uh, with me at chapter 17, verse 1. Put it on the screen to make it a little easier to follow. This is a verse which kicks off the final section that we're looking at this morning. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. And then verse 3, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. Now you see what's happening in those verses? One of the angels who has poured out the bowls of wrath from last week, one of them now wants to show John the consequences of it all. In particular, the angel wants to show John the punishment that it's going to mean for someone he calls the great prostitute. We'll get to her in a moment. What I want you to do, though, now is compare those verses with a couple of verses that we just heard read to us in chapter 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. Did you notice the parallels between those two verses? Just like the previous one, again, one of the seven angels who had one of the bowls of God's wrath, again they turn up. Again, wanting to show John something. Again, carrying him away in the spirit to see something. And yet in amongst all of that similarity, there's some really critical differences. In chapter 21, John is now not seeing a prostitute, but a bride. Complete opposite. And he's not being carried away to a barren desert, which symbolizes judgment. He's being carried away to a great and high mountain, symbolic of blessing and and closeness to God. Friends, that's just one of the clues in the text, but I'm sharing it with you so you can see that this big final section, these last six chapters, it's teasing out 
the consequences of the last great terrible day of God's wrath. It's teasing out the implications of what we saw last week. Because that one momentous event that we thought about last week, it's going to produce wildly different consequences for different people. I wonder what the consequences for you will be. Well, let's see what the text says. Firstly, in terms of punishment, because that's what's dealt with first. And in particular, as we've already noticed, it's this great prostitute who is initially singled out for attention. Chapter 17, verse 3. The angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast who was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. This is a pretty grotesque vision, this one. We got a prostitute on the back of a beast. Now, they're both in scarlet, so it sounds like the two of them are in fairly close cahoots with each other. The beast, well... He's popped up back in chapter 13. Perhaps you've had a chance to chat about him in your growth groups. I'm thinking a reasonable interpretation is that the beast represents the Roman Empire who has been persecuting the Christians to whom Revelation was originally written. Hold the beast for a moment. The prostitute now is firstly given our attention. She is symbolically called Babylon the Great. Now, At the time John's writing this, Babylon as an empire is long gone. So here in the vision, it sounds like she's being called Babylon because just like Babylon was in the Old Testament, so she is also the enemy, the persecutor of God's people. That's why she's described as being drunk with the blood of the saints. It's a very in-your-face image, this. This is a reckless, vicious whore. This is someone who will spread her legs for anyone as long as it means that the saint's blood will be spilt. It is a deliberately provocative vision. Wonder who she is? That's the $64,000 question. Common suggestions. Common suggestion is that she represents the city of Rome, the then capital of the known world, the capital city of the empire that was persecuting the Christians back when Revelation was written. Other common suggestions, the Roman Catholic Church. Admittedly, that one's not too popular amongst Catholics. Other suggestions, that she is a terrible empire yet to come in the future. Now, I'm not sure about the future one or even the Roman Catholic one. I'm not sure that would have made too much sense to the original Christians to whom Revelation was written. For my money, very, very quickly, let me suggest the prostitute is probably Jerusalem. For starters... The clearest statement we have identifying her comes in chapter 17, verse 18, where we're told straight out, the woman you saw is the great city. Okay, now that phrase, the great city, it's popped up a few times in Revelation. Back in chapter 11, verse 8, 11, verse 8, we are told there that the great city is, quote, is the city where the Lord Jesus was crucified. Join some dots. Great prostitute equals great city equals city where Lord Jesus was crucified. Sounds like a reference to Jerusalem to me. 
which would actually not be a new thought in the Bible at all. In the Old Testament passages like Ezekiel 23, go away and read it, read it if you're over 18, Ezekiel 23, it describes Jerusalem as a sleazy harlot lusting after allegiances with foreign powers. Ezekiel 23 is a sort of chapter in the Old Testament that uses imagery almost exactly like this here in Revelation, almost detail for detail at some points. To me, it sounds like this great prostitute of Revelation sounds like it's a reference to Jerusalem, picking up imagery used of Jerusalem straight out of the Old Testament, which would have made perfect sense to the Christians to whom Revelation was originally written. Remember, these are Christians being victimized by Jews, Jews who are dobbing them in for not worshipping the emperor. Remember, Jews, they've got exemption from this. They, t- they pay a temple tax. Uh, they don't have to worship the emperor. And so the Jews, they used to point the fingers to the Christians so as to get them into trouble. So much so that Jesus himself has called some of them a synagogue of Satan back in chapters 2 and 3. I'm thinking there's a pretty good case for, for seeing this harlot as Jerusalem. The Jews in cahoots with Rome spilling the, saint, uh, the blood of the saints. And yet on one level... The main point of this vision is not really so much who the harlot is. In terms of the actual amount of text given over to it, the main point of the vision is the simple fact that one day she will be punished. One day she will be brought to ruin. One day she will be left naked and her flesh eaten. And so all the way into chapter 18 and into chapter 19, you get this lingering detail about how utterly devastated she will be. And you get image upon image upon image piled on top of each other of the nations horrified at what, at the torment and the torture and the grief that she will be put through as this great prostitute who used to be drunk on the blood of the saints now is forced to drink the cup filled with the fury of God's wrath. Doesn't end with a prostitute. By the time you reach the second half of chapter 19, the vision moves on to explain how the beast that she's sitting on how his time is going to come. He might seem powerful and mighty, but he is unceremoniously thrown into a fiery lake of burning sulphur, all at the hands of Jesus, who's depicted as an invincible warrior. And then in chapter 20, the, the dragon's back. Remember the dragon? He, he was back there in chapter 12. The dragon, remember, was the image for the devil, Satan as the vision showed the seven churches of Asia that behind their persecution, in fact, lay Satan himself. Well, Satan's back in chapter 20, only this time, like the beast before him, he's unceremonially tossed into a lake of burning fire. And so by chapter 20, verse 10, we read that they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I realise I've just rushed through four complete chapters of Revelation with just sort of a sweep of the hand. Four controversial chapters at that. But I want to do it overall sweep of things because in a sense, in a sense, it doesn't really matter who the great prostitute is. If you don't agree with me that it's Jerusalem or in one sense, it doesn't matter. If you don't agree that the beast is the Roman Empire, well, in one sense, the point, the overall lesson of this is crystal clear. It is that God's enemies are being methodically punished. That's what we are seeing in these chapters. As all the forces of evil that have been introduced to us throughout the book so far, all those forces of evil are now being systematically defeated, systematically judged, systematically brought to ruin, one after the other after the other. 
Have you ever noticed how the one exact same event can bring different consequences for different people? One of the angels who last week poured out the bowls of God's final wrath, he's now showing John that when God's wrath falls, the consequences for the enemies of God will not be pretty. And it has the effect of clearing the way for what we just heard in in our reading this morning. It has the effect of clearing the way for now a completely different set of consequences for a different set of people. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Last week, with the pouring out of the seven last plagues, we saw the first heaven and the first earth pass away. Now we see their perfect replacement. And so it's worth noting there in verse 1, when it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the heaven that it's talking about, it's a reference to the heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun. Because you see, in Revelation, when it's a reference to heaven, as in the place that God dwells, uh, like back in chapter 21, verse 1, tw- verse tw- sorry, chapter 20, verse 1, where it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. The text actually says back there, I saw an angel coming down from the heaven. I have no idea why our English translations don't do this. But systematically, all the way through Revelation, when it's heaven in the sense that's, that that's where God is, it's always the heaven. But here in chapter 21, it's simply, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, what we're seeing here is that the future of God's people is not to be in heaven with God when we die. The future of God's people is to be in a new creation. I know that's not often what you see on the movies or in TV ads for Philadelphia cream cheese or whatever. You know, People have got, got wings on and they're sitting around on clouds doing nothing much in particular. That's never the Bible's picture of the future of God's people. The Bible's picture is far more vivid and exciting and energising. Our future is not to be in the heaven. Our future is to be in new heavens and on a new earth. And it's a wonderful new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, verse 2, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Unlike the great prostitute, unlike the old Jerusalem, who was a sleazy, faithless city to God, he now is the new Jerusalem, a perfect bride, a faithful city. It gets, gets better. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things had passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. It's a great picture read this passage with Tony Young, the fellow from early church who died this morning. I read the passage with him Friday night. It's a lovely picture. You keep reading, and the city is seen 
as, as uh, gleaming in jewels. By the time you hit verses 15 to 21, it's described as a perfectly symmetrical, massively protected city. It's shimmering in gold. And yet for all of that, it's actually what the city doesn't have that takes John's attention. Because by the time you reach verse 22, we discover there's no temple. Now, the temple was, of course, the focal point of the old earthly Jerusalem. That's because it was the symbol of God's presence. But by the time John sees this new Jerusalem, there's no need for a temple because, verse 22, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No need for symbols anymore. The real deal, face to face with reality. John says that you don't even need a sun or a moon anymore, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. It's a hard-to-imagine picture. The radiance of God, the radiance of Jesus, the Lamb, that's all the light we'll ever need as people are pouring into this city, pouring into the city where God is, really is, pouring into the city where there is no more crying and no more pain and no more mourning. Friends, the language of Revelation at this point, the the imagery, it's actually being strained to the limit. It's struggling to capture how good this is. I don't know how good you think the new creation will be. I can guarantee when it arrives it will be better. It is hard to imagine it. All the stuff in your life at this very moment that is giving you grief. All the stuff that you walk through those doors through on your mind. The decisions that that are weighing you down. The stuff that's just making life hard. The stuff you're being tempted with. The the physical sickness, the the loss, the pain, the confusions, the misunderstandings, the, the struggles at work. Struggles at home, confrontations, the anxieties. There will come a day, they will be gone. I can't imagine a life without difficulty. It almost defines life here. And there will come a time, they will be gone. Who for? The bride of the Lamb. And that's the critical thing. This is for the bride of the Lamb. And we are consistently told it's for no one else. Chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, friends, I know that I've covered a lot of revelation this morning, a ridiculous amount of revelation, really. Six chapters in which there's a lot of stuff, and yet I've I've covered them all in one hit so that we can see at, at another level there's actually one very simple truth at work in these chapters. These chapters are revealing to us that when this present world passes away, when the wrath of God in its fullness is poured out, Jesus makes all the difference to the consequences that you will face. 
those written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who have given themselves over to Jesus in trust and obedience, those who have been purchased for God by the Lamb who was slain, they will take their place in a new perfect world. And everyone else, it doesn't bear thinking about. And for the first century Christians to whom Revelation was originally written, this would have been great comfort. This is written to Christians whose faith only ever seems to bring them misery and hardship. And from go to woe, especially here at the very end, Revelation has been a picture book, a vision book, an apocalyptic book, painting vivid pictures so so as to show them that Jesus is worth it. Whatever they're going through, he is worth it. I reckon that's a lesson we... It's good for us to hear as well. A mate of mine was telling me about... um, when he and his wife were given free tickets to go and see a live show by the comedian Ross Noble. Ross Noble, some of you may have seen every now and then on telly. Seemed to them a good idea. They'd never been to a live comedy show before. And when they got to the show, they were really excited to find that they had really good seats as well, right in the front row. That would have made me nervous. They thought it seemed pretty neat until they discovered that a Ross Noble comedy show basically consists of Ross Noble working his way along the front row of the audience, making fun of them. Steve said he just felt sick in his stomach as Ross worked his way along, getting closer and closer and closer to him. Until eventually, in what Steve said, you know, as on movies where everything goes into slow motion... It's as if Ross, so what about you? What do you do? I'm a Christian minister. Silence. And eventually Ross Noble said, I hate Christians. And the audience burst into laughter. Steve reckoned it was the longest night of his life. Now, if you knew this, Blake, he has a great sense of humour and he can certainly take a joke. But he reckoned just all night it kept coming back to him. Kept coming back to ridiculing Jesus. Kept coming back to making fun of Christians. Sometimes following Jesus in this world is not much fun. Sometimes you wonder if he, if he is even worth the effort. The jokes, times you feel the odd one out. The endless self-evaluation as you struggle with sin and temptation. The burden you feel for loved ones who don't yet know Jesus. The tiredness that comes from seeking first the kingdom of God. The tiredness that comes from serving others here in the church. The weariness of perhaps even just being organised enough to get to a growth group or, or, or even being here. Sometimes in this world it can seem as if life would actually be a lot easier if you didn't follow Jesus. Revelation is written to Christians who are doing it far tougher than any of us will probably ever have to do it as Christians. And its message from start to finish is that Jesus is worth our every effort. 
And one day that will be obvious. But until that day arrives, we give him every effort. I'll pray. Father, thank you for the great hope we have because of the Lamb's book of life. Father, thank you for the things that you have shown us of Jesus over these past weeks and throughout the book of Revelation. Thank you that he is the Lion of Judah who has triumphed, the Lamb of God who was slain, so that we can be sealed with your grace and have reservations in a new creation which we just don't deserve. Father, there are days that we long for that new creation to come more than others. But until it gets here, help us persevere, help us endure, help us to help each other. Amen.